All right, men. Well, it is that time where we get started again, and our, our topic, our study for this evening is the topic of calling, the calling of God. And as we think of that topic, it's important to recall what we have already discussed in a survey manner regarding the doctrine of salvation, and that we can take this doctrine of salvation and we can divide it into three categories, three rather distinct categories. Even though salvation is one cohesive unit, we can look at it in terms of these three categories. First of all, we can look at it in terms of redemption arranged. That is the planning of redemption as it took place in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. Secondly, we can look at redemption accomplished. That is, redemption accomplished in a moment of time. Redemption accomplished at the cross. As we see the the person of Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, reach the culmination of his redemptive activity there on the cross as he pays the penalty for the sins of all who would believe. And then thirdly, we can look at salvation in the category of redemption applied. Redemption applied. And this, is, this, this relates to redemption as it is applied to the relative time of the individual believer. In other words, some will, uh, some will believe it at, at, at all different times. Some in their early childhood, some in their adult years, some the result of many, many years of, of, of being exposed to the gospel, and, and others the first time they ever hear. This is redemption applied, and it is relative to the time of the individual believer. Now, when we talk about the concept of calling, we are talking about the the initiation of redemption applied. So we've already looked at redemption arranged, and that really had to do with its, its planning in the mind of God. We looked at how that related to the doctrine of election, and how God has planned salvation with respect to particular individuals in eternity past. Then we looked at the accomplishment at the cross. We looked at the concept of atonement, and we specifically focused on the issues of propitiation and redemption. Propitiation being that aspect of the atonement that relates particularly to God. It is the appeasement of his wrath and the change of his wrath to his favor. And then we also looked at the atonement in terms of redemption as it relates specifically to the sinner as the sinner is purchased, his freedom is purchased through the atonement, his freedom from sin and sins and the law's condemnation. And now when we look at its application, the application of salvation or the application of redemption, the first in a series of several components now, the largest aspect, the largest category of salvation, we talk about calling and in the weeks and months to come, we are going to look at, at the application of salvation, both as it relates to the specific moment of salvation, where we have things like calling and regeneration, conversion, and the, 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 the components of conversion being faith and repentance. We'll look at adoption. We'll look at justification. We'll look at union. We'll look at reconciliation. All of those things occurring in that one instant of salvation. But as salvation is applied, it also has a process. And so we will also be looking at those process components, such as the, the, the doctrine of sanctification. And then as we look at the application of salvation in terms of its ultimate result, we'll look at the concepts of glorification and resurrection. But calling begins our study of the application of salvation. John Murray has stated it this way, when we think of the application of redemption, we must not think of it as one simple and indivisible act. It comprises a series of acts and processes. To mention some, we have calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. These are 
all distinct, and none of these can be defined in terms of the other. Each has its own distinct meaning, function, and purpose in the action and grace of God. Close quote. In other words, although we look at salvation as being one ultimate act, it is a very profound act. It is an act that has many components, many different pieces that all move together, all functioning for their purpose, all distinct and yet working towards one ultimate goal. And calling is one of those. Now, with that said, let's now turn to some key definitions and their definitions. And when we talk about the concept of calling, the terms that we will study this evening are three. We're going to look at the universal call, the gospel call, and the effectual call. The universal call, the gospel call, and the effectual call. And really, it's the third of these, the effectual call, that relates to the doctrine of salvation. The previous two do not directly relate to it, but we're going to see that as we define each of these three calls. The first is the universal call. The universal call. What is the universal call? How do we define that? We can define it this way. The universal call is a non-verbal call. It is a non-verbal compelling witness, we could say, that is given through all the things that God has made, which summon humankind everywhere to give glory to God. That is the universal call. It is given through everything that God has made. It is a summons to all of mankind everywhere and at all times to give glory and thanksgiving to God. We can see this expressed in such texts as Psalm 19 verses 1 to 4 where we we read these words. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. What the psalmist is there declaring is that all of God's creation, all that he has created, is giving this compelling witness It doesn't use words. It doesn't use propositions. There is no voice. And yet the witness nonetheless is compelling. It is universal in nature. Romans 1 verses 20 to 20 also refer to the fact that from the creation of the world, from the very start, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. We go on to read that this renders humankind without excuse. Paul continues, he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That is the compelling call of creation, to honor God as God and to give him his rightful thanks, the honor that is due his name. But as we read, all mankind, without exception, resists this call and suppresses it. In Acts 14, verse 17, we read these words, God did not leave himself without a witness, Paul preaches, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart's With food and gladness. God, Paul says, did not leave humankind without this compelling witness. So, in summary, we can understand it this way the universal call is the witness to God that is inherent in everything that He has made. It is not based on words, as the psalmist says, and we can call it non propositional in nature. You'll sometimes hear that when we talk about the revelation that is given in creation of God and his existence, his power, we call it non-propositional revelation. It is revelation that is based on things and experience, not based on words and propositions. Its purpose, the scriptures say, is to declare the greatness 
and goodness of God to all people universally and to compel them to worship. But there's one important thing to note about this universal call. It does not contain the message of salvation from sin. It is not a call designed to declare, to pronounce the remedy to man's inherent sinfulness. That leads us to the second call, the gospel call. And this is what provides what the universal call cannot. The gospel call is a verbal call. It is a call of propositions. It is a call of assertions. It is a call of declarations. It is verbal in nature. It is a verbal call that is given indirect response to the plight of sinful man. We could call it the preaching of the gospel. That is the gospel call. It is the message proclaimed which sinners need to hear for their salvation. Matthew Barrett, in his book, 40 Questions About Salvation, defines it this way. The gospel call is a public offering of redemption and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and an invitation and command to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. End quote. That is the gospel call distilled into a very basic, straightforward understanding. We can see this gospel call referenced or described in Scripture in in, in different ways. For example, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 to 14, we read these words. Paul states, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is quoting a text from Joel, and he says that the one who calls upon the specific name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the dilemma. That name is not declared through the universal call. It is not declared through the universal witness of creation. That name is a name that is provided only through the witness of special revelation. And that name is revealed in the gospel call. And so Paul then continues with a series of rhetorical questions, emphasizing the need for this gospel call to be proclaimed. He says, as he continues in verse 14 of Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Paul also states in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 to 20, he also states this, 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 uh, this witness of, of the word of reconciliation as he describes it. He says this, now all these things are from God, referring to the message of reconciliation. The gospel. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the gospel call, the message of reconciliation, or as Paul describes it, the word of reconciliation. Now, with that said, we can further define the concept of the gospel call in several ways. One is to note its presentation, its manner of presentation. And and as we think of the presentation of the gospel call, we can note these two things. First of all, it is an invitation. It is an invitation to salvation. The gospel call is an invitation. So we see this even in terms of the presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, for example, we we read these words. Ho, everyone who thirsts, 
come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Even in the Old Testament, the message of redemption, the message of salvation was an invitation to those who had nothing to offer. It is an invitation. In Matthew chapter 11, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, we read Jesus giving this invitation when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here it is an invitation. Jesus is appealing specifically to those who are weary, to those who are poor in spirit, and he is inviting them to come to him. But the gospel call is not just an invitation. It is not something that is just put out there for the sinner to judge for himself and then leave as just a matter of preference or taste. No, the gospel call as regards to its presentation is also a command to believe. It is not just an invitation. It is a command to believe. For in the gospel call, the Lord Jesus asserts his lordship over sinners. So, for example, Jesus says, as recorded in Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus preaches, he says, repent. He calls upon sinners to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As the king, the gospel call issues forth from him as a command, as an imperative. And in in a way, when we present the gospel, we must recognize that as well. We don't just provide an invitation. When we present the gospel call, we assert the Lord's lordship over the sinner in that we command sinners everywhere to believe to repent of their sin, and to flee to Christ. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, as Paul draws his Areopagus address there in Athens to a close, Paul says these words, Acts 17, 30 to 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That is the presentation of the gospel call. We can also define the gospel call further by looking at its contents. We we see its presentation. It is both an invitation and a command. But let's look for just a moment at the contents of the gospel call. And certainly we could spend several several evenings just studying the contents of the gospel. But, But basically we can crystallize the contents of the gospel call into these three things. First of all, for the gospel call to be the gospel call, it must include a presentation of the facts of the gospel and the way of salvation centering on Jesus Christ and the atonement. This is the the first and the, the basics, the foundation of the gospel call. It must present the facts of the atonement. It must in some way describe in a sufficient manner the the achievement of Jesus Christ that he provided on the cross. So it is a presentation of the facts of the gospel and the way of salvation centering on Jesus Christ and the achievement of the cross. Secondly, as as regards to the contents of the gospel, it must include the summons to come to Christ in faith and repentance. It must include the the command to appropriate 
the things that Christ has achieved on the cross and to appropriate, appropriate those things through faith, through belief and repentance. It summons the audience. The gospel call summons the audience to believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He indeed is the one who has died for the sins of those who believe. He is indeed the son of God, the sinless, spotless lamb of God given for the salvation of sinners. It is the summons to turn from the world and to turn to Christ. It is the summons to turn from the idols of this present age and to turn to the one true living God. And thirdly, as regards to its contents, the gospel call offers a promise. It offers a promise of forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all those who do indeed come to Christ in faith and repentance. So the the gospel call is both a presentation of the facts of the atonement. It is a summons to come to Christ in faith and repentance. And it offers a promise that those who do come in faith and repentance can believe that their sins will be forgiven and they will be granted eternal life. So we have the manner of presentation of the gospel call. We have the contents of the gospel call. We also must recognize as we define this concept of the gospel call, we must recognize its limitations. It is different on the one hand from the universal call because it contains the facts about the only name given among men by which we may be saved, the name of Jesus. So it it includes more than the universal call does. It includes the name of Jesus and it includes the the information uh, that's necessary as a uh, to, to present mankind in re- in regards to a remedy from man's sin. The universal call does not provide that. It does not provide the remedy to man's sinfulness. The gospel call does, but the gospel call, like the universal call, can be rejected. The gospel call, like the universal call, can be suppressed. It can be maligned. The gospel call, like the universal call, when it is observed, when it is heard, it can be resisted. In and of itself, the gospel call, though it contains the message of salvation, in and of itself, the gospel call does not have the power to penetrate the resistance of man's sin hardened soul. So, in that sense, we say that the gospel call is like the universal call in that it is not inherently effectual. It is not inherently effectual. It contains what it must contain. The gospel call contains a true message, a sincere message, and it includes how that message is to be appropriated through faith and repentance. It guarantees that when that message is appropriated, there will be the experience of forgiveness of sins and there will be the reception of eternal life. But the gospel call just contains that knowledge. It just contains that information, but it does not contain the ability to overcome man's resistance. That is not inherent to the gospel call. That is not what God has placed within the gospel call itself. Throughout the scriptures, we read just how often, how this message of salvation, this message of good news has been resisted even by those who are most religious in nature. So for example, in Isaiah 65 verse 12, God pronounces this damnation upon the generation of Israelites whom he addresses these words. He says, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will bow down to slaughter because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear and you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. What 
what sobering words the prophet gives us. We read that God called, but they did not answer. The people did not answer. He spoke, but they did not hear. Through the prophets, God called. Through the prophets, God spoke. Through the prophets, God gave his message of redemption, but it was resisted. Even in Paul's Areopagus address, going back to Acts 17 in the New Testament, in verses 32 to 33, after he has given this gospel call, we read Luke's summary of the response. Acts 17, verses 32 to 33, we read these words. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, so Paul was presenting the facts of the atonement. So specific reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, central to the message of the atonement. Now, when they had heard the res- of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, direct opposition. But others said, we will hear you again concerning this. Not opposition, but certainly not acceptance. And so Paul went out of their midst. And all of that now leads us to the third kind of call. The effectual call. The effectual call. Let's now look at that third kind of call. Now, all Christians agree about the nature of the first two calls. All Christians will will recognize the need to proclaim the gospel message to sinners because the gospel is not inherent in creation itself. Now, certainly God could put the gospel in every tree leaf. It could be visible anytime someone would look at DNA. It could be visible anytime that we would see a flash of lightning. It could flash the gospel message. God can do that. He has chosen not to. He has chosen in his wisdom not to place the message of salvation in the general witness of creation. So Christians agree about the need to proclaim this gospel call because the universal call does not contain this information. It's not the purpose of the universal call. Moreover, Christians know from experience and from the scriptures themselves, the the narratives of the preaching of the apostles and the prophets, that the gospel call is not effectual in and of itself. Whenever the gospel is preached, we do not see every single member of the audience responding to that gospel call. So we are led to the inevitable conclusion that the mere presentation of the message of the atonement of the need to believe and repent and of the promise of forgiveness and eternal life, that that mere proclamation does not guarantee a result. In fact, if anything, what we see when the gospel is presented is that most, most reject it. The majority of those who receive the gospel reject it. And that's why Jesus said, broad and easy is the path that leads to destruction. Not all those who hear the gospel message believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So where does the disagreement among Christians arise? It arises in what happens after the gospel call. What happens after? And this concept of the effectual call becomes a bone of contention among many and we'll get into that in just, just a few moments. But let me define now the effectual call uh, according to those of us who would, who would see its testimony in Scripture. The effectual call. What is the effectual call? Anthony Hokema defines the effectual call this way. Briefly, the effectual call is the gospel call made effective to salvation in the hearts and lives of God's people. Bruce Ware defines the effectual call this way. It is God's inward and ultimately persuasive summons to repent of sin and to turn to Christ for salvation. That's a good definition. He says it is God's inward and ultimately persuasive summons to repent of sin and to turn to Christ for salvation. 
John Frame defines it similarly when he says this, in effectual calling, God acts on us first before we offer him any response. He acts sovereignly, calling us into fellowship with his son. This calling is the ultimate source in time of all blessings of salvation, end quote. Now, as you look at those definitions, the common thing that we see in those definitions is that it refers to the efficacious nature of God's sovereign summons. In other words, it is more than just the objective, external presentation of the gospel. Something more happens when that calling penetrates the hardness of man's hearts, man's hearts and reaches the target. It reaches the target. And so it is the gospel call made effective. It is the gospel call that is ultimately persuasive. It is God's sovereign act. That is how we are to understand this effectual call. Now, why is it important? Go back to the, 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 the thing that I just mentioned, how Christians will disagree over the presence of this third call. And it comes down to this. The concept of the effectual call seeks to address one very crucial issue. How does one appropriate the gospel call? How does one receive the gospel call? How does the gospel penetrate? That's the key issue that is addressed in this discussion. Put it this way. How is a sinner, how is one who is incapable of pleasing God in his sinful condition, able to receive the gospel call as it ought to be received? Remember our understanding of of the depravity of man. Remember that as we defined sin according to scripture, as we defined sin, we said it was lawlessness against God. And we noted that the testimony of scripture about man is that man is totally depraved. And we use that terminology, totally depraved, not to say that every single human being is as evil as he or she could be. But we use the terminology total depravity to say that every component of man, of the human condition, has been corrupted by sin. Everything that the sinner does is motivated by some unrighteous, impure motivation. Every word has some uncleanliness to it. Every act, even those religious acts, are ultimately not pleasing to God because they are impacted and influenced by sin. We also said under total depravity that man in his sinful state, in and of himself, is not able to do any act that is inherently pleasing to God. Because everything, every act, every thought that he does in some way has been impacted by sin, influenced by sin, and a truly, perfectly righteous God cannot close his eyes to that reality. He cannot ignore it. He cannot pretend that it does not exist. If he does, he would cease to be perfectly righteous. So what explains how the gospel goes from its general objective call, which is inevitably and always resisted and rejected by a sinner in this state? How does it penetrate and hit the target? Or in another way to look at it, what explains why some actually do believe the gospel call and appropriate it, while others reject it. It could be in the same room, people of a similar background, people of similar experiences and, uh, and, and upbringing, put them in a room, speak the gospel to them, tell them of the atoning work of Christ, compel them to to believe in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins, offer them the promises that those who do believe and and do repent have the promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And 
99 of them will reject it. And one, and sometimes the least likely candidate, according to human standards, will be the one to respond. What explains that? Is it because that one is somehow inherently, internally better, more moral than all the rest, than the 99? Or, Or maybe it's because the one who explained to him the gospel did it in a better way and therefore it hit its target? What explains why some do believe the gospel and others reject it? Is that purely a a human thing, a human explanation to be found in the, in the psychology of, of a human individual that, that makes a person more likely to accept the gospel? Not according to Scripture. Not according to Scripture. Scripture does not recognize that. Scripture teaches that the reason why the gospel call does hit the target in certain cases is because those individuals have been effectually called. They have experienced a calling that goes beyond the mere objective presentation of the gospel facts. Let me give you an example of this from the words of Jesus. We quoted before Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, which describes the gospel call, the call that goes out to all who would, who would be able to, to hear it. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, Jesus says. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, when we look at that, we can say and define these words of Jesus, this invitation as the gospel call. This is the proclamation of good news. Jesus is inviting sinners, those who are poor in spirit, to come to him. That's the gospel call. And undoubtedly, those words are very, very familiar to all of us. Those very comforting words. But not as frequently as needed do we read the verses that precede these words. These words do not occur in a vacuum. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, come to me. Jesus' invitation does not occur in a vacuum. In fact, the, the previous words that are part of this paragraph, part of this statement by Jesus... The previous words in verses 25 to 27 are the words that describe the effectual call. So we have the gospel call, the call with which we're most familiar in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. But immediately prior to that, Jesus explains this thing called the effectual call in verses 25 to 27 of Matthew 11. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things. What's these things? The gospel call, the invitation. You have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and to anyone and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now that is the effectual call. The effectual call is that supernatural work that goes beyond the gospel call, whereby Jesus is effectually revealed to the sinner. That is the effectual call. We see this also referenced in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, where where Paul says this, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on in verses 29 to 30 to give this chain of unbreakable act actions that are accomplished to the same group of people, to this group of people whom Paul identifies in verse 28 as those who have been called. And he says that those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. An unbreakable chain. No one is lost throughout this entire process. The calling When it is given, this effectual calling will result in 
justification. That's what Paul is saying. 2 Timothy 1 verses 18, uh, 2 Timothy 1 verses 8 to 10 have this same idea of effectual calling that God, Paul says, has saved us and called us with a holy calling. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. A few verses later in 1 Corinthians 1, we even have a more dramatic uh, description of this effectual call when Paul says this, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. There is the gospel call. There is the broad indiscriminate offer of the gospel. And Paul goes on to state this to the Jews. It's a stumbling block. They resist to the Gentiles. It's foolishness. They resist, but notice what comes next. But to those who are called, both from the Jews and from the Greeks, the Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. To those who are called, Christ appears as the power of God and the wisdom of God. The very opposite of the stumbling block and the foolishness with which The Jews and the Gentiles look upon the gospel. John 6 verse 44, again, going to Old Testament or to to Jesus' words in the gospel. Jesus references uh, this concept, not using the exact terminology of calling, but the same concept. When he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. That term for drawing is what we would call the effectual calling. Now, in light of this, let's look at some essential characteristics of this calling. Essential characteristics. I want to I give you some essential characteristics that would help us understand better this effectual calling now that we have defined it and seen some of its examples in Scripture. Number one, the first essential characteristic is that the effectual call is necessitated by total depravity. The effectual call is necessitated by total depravity. Romans 3 verse 9 to 19 gives us that important description of total depravity, emphasizing this very important fact. No one is listening. No one is seeking. That's the reality of sinful humankind. No one is listening for God. No one is seeking him. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, Paul says, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So we see, and we can look also at Romans 8 verses 6 to 8, that the natural man is both unwilling to hear and unable to hear. He is not waiting for the gospel call. He is not seeking the gospel call. And when the gospel call comes to him in and of itself, it is, it is not effectual in overcoming his resistance. Anthony Hokema says this, if our condition by nature is as described in the passages just quoted, It is obvious that we cannot in our own strength accept the gospel call. To ask people who are by nature spiritually dead, hostile to God, unable to understand the things of God's spirit, and unable to submit to God's law, to to respond favorably to his invitation to repent of sin and believe in Christ, is like asking a totally deaf woman to answer your question, or a totally blind man to read a note you have written. So number one, we have to recognize that this effectual call is needed in addition to the gospel call because of total depravity. It is total depravity. It is the sin-hardened heart that makes this effectual call necessary as an addition to the gospel call. That leads to number two. A second essential characteristic of the effectual call. The effectual call is dependent upon the gospel call. 
Now, it's important to note this, even though we can distinguish between the two, between the gospel call and its objective proclamation of the atonement of its means of appropriation through belief and repentance and its promise. Nonetheless, in and of itself, it it, it does not have what it takes, but nonetheless, it is still necessary. It still must be preached. The effectual call builds upon the effectual or the, the gospel call. The effectual call builds upon the gospel call. The spirit works with and through the preaching of the gospel, not apart from it. That's why we read in Romans 10 verse 14, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And then going a few verses later to this very important text, Romans 10 verse 17, which really emphasizes this. Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There he is emphasizing the fact that the gospel call is absolutely essential in the salvation of a sinner. It's not that we're neglecting or rejecting the need for the gospel call by emphasizing the effectual call. Rather, the effectual call needs the gospel call to be effectual. It is dependent upon the preaching of the gospel. Thirdly, A third essential characteristic, the effectual call is a sovereign work of God, dependent upon his choice alone. Acts 16 verse 14, Luke records this this instance associated with a woman named Lydia. And this is what he writes, Acts 16 verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Now stop there for just a moment. When he says that she was a worshiper of God, it meant that she was attracted to uh, the, uh, the, the worship of God through the Jewish people. In Philippi, there was no, uh, there was no Jewish synagogue there, and so the Jews would get together at a, 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 usually a stream somewhere out in the in in the the forest away from the city they didn't have a they didn't have a synagogue they would go there and that would be their place on the sabbath where they would uh read and pray together and and Lydia is a gentile but somehow she has heard of the god of the old testament and has started coming to the has started coming to the the uh these meetings that these this group of Jews would have. And Paul went there to preach the gospel. Now, notice this. When Paul preached the gospel at these synagogues, not everyone responded in faith, in believing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. In fact, many, both Jews and God-fearers who were in those synagogues there to engage in worship, many would actually reject Paul's preaching of Jesus as the Christ. It was no guarantee that when Paul would present Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah, that those in the synagogue and those Gentiles who associated with the synagogue, that that they would ever adhere to it. There was no guarantee. But notice what Luke says here. A woman named Lydia, Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is a sovereign work of God dependent upon his choice alone. He did not do that to everyone who would associate with the Jewish synagogue. Luke's very clear about that. Paul's greatest enemies in the book of Acts were those from the synagogues. But in this case, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of Paul. It's an effectual call, a work of a sovereign God. Galatians 1 verses 15 to 16 says this, but when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb. Now talk about an unconditional choice. God determined this before time, and and he determined it even before Paul was even in existence. He called me through his grace and was well pleased to reveal his son in me. There is the effectual call. 
Now we could look at other texts, but here is the important, the important takeaway. We do not call ourselves, and preachers do not even call us. It is God who calls. And that calling is effectual when it brings about faith and repentance. John Murray says this, This fact should make us keenly aware how dependent we are upon the sovereign grace of God in the application of redemption. We may not like this doctrine, but if so, it is because we are averse to the grace of God and wish to arrogate ourselves the prerogative that belongs to God. Number four, a fourth essential characteristic of the effectual call is this. The effectual call is always effectual. We've touched on this already. It, it obviously relates to the previous point of God's sovereignty. Because God is sovereign, there must be an effectual nature to his actions. He's never frustrated. And again, this is what distinguishes the effectual call from the gospel call. It's that the effectual call cannot be resisted. And this is what has led some in history to call this, this concept irresistible grace. In fact, this term irresistible grace was coined by those who objected to this concept. Who objected to the sovereign efficacious work of God as he redeems sinners. It was the opponents of that view who came up with the term irresistible, irresistible grace. And that term has now stuck with those who believe in God's sovereignty in salvation. And is actually, it forms the I and tulip, if you've heard of that, total depravity, and so on, and the I and tulip. It expresses after total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, the I refers to irresistible grace, and then the P refers uh, to the perseverance of the saints. But the I there, irresistible grace. Well, well, what is that? If it's always effectual, it means it's irresistible. But we must understand this. When we call it irresistible, or even when the opponents of this doctrine call it irresistible, we should recognize that irresistible here does not mean that this call drags the sinner kicking and screaming to faith. No, it is irresistible in that it makes the sinner's will willing. You could put it this way. It is the effectual call that makes the ear both able to hear and attracted to the sound it hears. The effectual call is is what makes the sinner open to hear it and desirous to hear the gospel call. That is not true of the sinner in and of himself in his total depravity. He does not want to hear the gospel. So what explains that those who do believe want to hear the gospel? It is this irresistible grace. One uh, theologian, Herman Bavink, has put it this way, God's effectual calling, or you could say his irresistible calling, is so powerful that it cannot be conquered. It is so powerful that it cannot be resisted. And yet, and here's the important thing to note about this, and yet it is so loving that it excludes all force. It is so powerful that it cannot be conquered, and yet so loving that it excludes all force. So when you hear that concept of irresistible grace, and you think of, Uh, of somebody force feeding someone who doesn't want to eat. That is not the concept. That's not the analogy. That's not the picture. Rather, the effectual calling is so powerful that it is never resisted when it is given. But it is also so loving, so inherently beautiful and attractive that it does not need force. It does not force anyone to do anything Against their will. It makes the believer willing. The the, the sinner willing. The fifth essential quality is this. The effectual call has a specific purpose. We don't really have time to get into this. We're going to look at this more as we get into the future components of salvation. But where we see the effectual call described, it is usually with respect to a particular destiny. And that's the nature of a call. A call, it summons someone to something. 
we, we can see it this way. That the call is an invitation or a summons to something. And so in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, it is a call into fellowship with his son. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, it is a call into the kingdom and glory of God. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, it is a call to eternal life. In Galatians 5 verse 13, it is a call to freedom. That is freedom from the bondage of the law and freedom from the curse or bondage of, the, of sin and freedom from the curse of the law. In Colossians 3 verse 15, it is a call to the peace of Christ. In 1 Peter 2 verse 20, it is a call to patient endurance of trials. Therefore, we must remember that the effectual call is a summons to a kind of life, a new way of life, a distinctive kind of life, a life that is different, that is wholly different than the life we currently are in as sinners who are lost. So those are the, 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 the essential characteristics. Let me close now with some practical implications of this doctrine of the effectual call. So we've defined it. We have looked at its essential components, its essential qualities or characteristics. Now let's look at how this relates to us in a practical sense. Here's the first practical implication. The gospel must be preached to all. The gospel must be preached to all. We must understand this. The effectual call does not work apart from the gospel. Don't misunderstand this. To assert the reality of the effectual call does not mean that the work of evangelism is over. Because as we saw, one of the essential components of the effectual call is that it builds upon the gospel call. It works in tandem with the gospel call, not apart from it. And therefore, the great commission of Matthew 28, 19 to 20 is, is just as much binding today as, as is ever. We cannot negate the fact that the gospel needs to be preached by affirming this idea of the effectual call. Rather, by asserting the reality of the effectual call, we must at the same time assert the necessity of the gospel call. The gospel must be preached to all. Some have argued that this doctrine of the effectual call that is given in addition to the gospel call, that this kills missions, that this kills missions, that this is somehow contrary to a missionary spirit. And that is not the case. Our job is simple. We are to preach the gospel. We are not responsible for the effectual call. We are responsible in our obedience to the gospel call. And this teaches us that, therefore, as we preach the gospel call to all, knowing that for anyone to be saved, that person must hear the gospel preached because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. But at the same time, we recognize that it's not our persuasion that, that will get that person into the kingdom of God. It's not our craftiness and delivery. It's not that we put the lights a certain way in the room to, to create some kind of ambience to, to get them more receptive to the gospel. We realize that no matter what we do, we cannot save the sinner. That is done only by a sovereign God and that must be done through his calling, in addition to our gospel preaching. And this leads us to the second point. The effectual call is what gives hope in evangelism and missions. The effectual call is what gives hope in evangelism and missions. If we really believe that the Bible, what the Bible teaches about depravity, yet reject the concept of an effectual calling, we could not expect anyone to be saved. Think about that. If you believe what the Bible says about sinners, about the nature of sin, about its permeation through the human condition, if you believe that, then you would, and you didn't believe in the effectual call and God's supernatural, his sovereign, his effectual working, you would have no hope that any soul could be saved. John Piper states it this way, the great biblical doctrines of unconditional election 
and predestination unto sonship and irresistible grace in the preaching of Christ are mighty incentives to venture forth into a Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or tribal culture where people seem hard as nails against the preaching of the gospel. George Whitfield said this, man is nothing. He hath a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven until God worketh in him to will and to do his good pleasure, end quote. And you know that it was that which motivated George Whitfield to become one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the United States and in the history of Christendom. He was motivated by this conviction that left to himself, no one will respond to the gospel call until God worketh in him. William Carey, that great father of modern missions, said this, William Carey served in India in the early 1800s, 40 years there. And he gave this counsel to a young man. He said this, remember three things. First, that it is your duty to preach the gospel to every creature. That's your duty, he said. Second, he said, remember that God has declared that his word shall accomplish that for which it was sent. And third, Remember that he can easily remove the present seemingly formidable obstacles as we can move the smallest particles of dust. William Carey was motivated by the sovereignty of God and the knowledge that God's call is effectual. Number three, the third practical implication is that there is the need for the effectual call. This need for the effectual call forces us to rely upon the Spirit's work in evangelism. Listen, if, if the Holy Spirit be not part of things, we cannot save a single soul. This knowledge of the effectual call heightens our responsibility that the salvation of the sinner is not in our hands and that we are entirely dependent upon the Holy Spirit whenever we share the gospel. And forgetting this important truth will result in all kinds of manipulative efforts in the evangelistic endeavor. And we see that in the the breadth of evangelicalism today. All the kinds of crazy things that are done to manipulate a sinner to make some kind of a decision. And all of that reflects that inherent incipient belief that we hold the key in our presentation of the gospel. We hold the key in our gospel call and we forget that it is the Holy Spirit who gives birth to dead sinners, who brings them to life through his supernatural regeneration. Number four, remember this. If you have experienced this call, you are called to something. You are called to something. If you experience this effectual call that made the gospel call effective in your life, notice that you were not just called to experience forgiveness of sins and that's it. You were called to a way of life. You were called to a new life. You were summoned, not just for a one-time act of faith and repentance. You were summoned to a life that is entirely different from the life that you used to live. Don't forget that. And number five. Fifth practical implication, and finally is this, the effectual call gives all the glory to God. It gives all the glory to God. There's a hymn, we sang it earlier, a hymn by Isaac Watts called How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And this hymn in beautiful language expresses the reality of this effectual call. I want to read some of the stanzas. I'll read all of it here. As we close our time together. The first stanza. How sweet and awful is the place. With Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays. The choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs. Join to admire the feast. Each of us cries with thankful tongues. Lord 
Why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon this truth tonight, we are brought to this, this, this state of awe. As we re- recall or as, as we reflect upon that moment when you drew us in and we remember how before you drew us, we resisted, we suppressed. We did not care. We were ambivalent. We were without hope. And yet we find ourselves today in this storeroom of of all the greatest treasures of Christ. And so we, we ask the question, Lord, why was I made a guest? We echo the words of Isaac Watts when we say, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make the wretched choice and rather starve than come. And we could even add to that and say when for many years before we were made to come, we resisted that same call. Heavenly Father, we are brought to this humble amazement. You drew us in with that effectual power, that irresistible grace that could not be conquered but was so loving, it did not need force. You drew us to yourself. You gave us ears to hear the most beautiful message. That Christ died for sinners. And that by believing in that atonement and turning from the idols of this world, we receive the promise of forgiveness of sins now and forevermore and the joy and bliss of eternal life and fellowship with you. We give you thanks for this in the name of the one whom we heard, Jesus. Amen.